You know, I pastored a native church for seven years and uh, mostly traditional people, not people from a Christian background. And people constantly were amazed and they said, Jesus is just like one of our medicine people, one of our spiritual leaders, you know, same values and some of the, even the practices he did, like, you know, the, the healing of the eyes and things like that. So I don't know any real traditional native people who've ever had trouble with Jesus, but they've had trouble with Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of trouble. So I think we have a, a worldview that is much closer to Jesus and what Jesus taught. If you hold on to a Western worldview, what you're doing is you're you're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's a uh, it's a losing worldview. Today's episode will be a little different. So far this season, we've been trying to answer some of the basic questions of climate change. What is it? Who is it affecting? And how is it affecting them? How did we get to this point? But this episode marks a shift in the direction of our content, and it may feel a bit more reflective or sobering or meditative than usual. So take a deep breath, strap yourself in, and let's begin our journey to the biggest question of all, one that we've been avoiding since the beginning. What do we do about it? Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. In today's episode, we won't be sharing a specific story of impact. It's more a discussion of mentality, what it is that shapes our worldview. The episode includes parts of a recorded conversation we had amongst ourselves in response to a recently released climate report. And to follow that up, you'll hear from a Native American friend of ours who helps us step back and take it all in. So I'm Randy Woodley. I'm a United Ketubian Cherokee descendant. My tribe is in Oklahoma. Uh, Married to Edith Woodley. And we have a small farm out, uh, it's a non-certified organic farm in Newburgh, Oregon, which is the first real... This is Randy Woodley. We met him in the middle of one of his speaking tours at the Rooted and Grounded Conference in Elkhart, Indiana. Um, Elahe is a Cherokee Indian word, it means um, harmony, basically. So, um, and part of that harmony is not just the not being at war with each other, but the land is producing in abundance the way it's supposed to. He's a Native American farmer, but he's also a Christian theologian and author. And I'm a full-time professor at Portland Seminary, George Fox University, uh, professor of faith and culture. Preacher, poet. Let's see, I'm a writer, do some speaking, yakking around. <laughs> and he has some important critiques of Western worldviews, things we can't see because we're embedded in it. And then I was asked to come here and uh, do Rooted and Grounded, and it's been a great time. It's over. I'll probably be able to get some sleep now. (laughs) We were also at Rooted and Grounded. It's where we met Corinna Gore from Episode 2 and Ben Brabson from Episode 4. Everyone we met there pushed us and challenged us in new ways. Like Western scientific minds, the first thing they want to know when they hear a story 
is, well, did that really happen, right? What are the facts? And I think indigenous people sort of worldwide, that's not the question. It's not our question. The, the question is, you know, what is true about that for me? What is true for us? With Randy, we talked about the creation story and the meaning of original sin. I'm pretty sure that the storyteller didn't want it to be interpreted as, you know, did this really happen? But, you know, are people hearing what I'm saying in the story? What's the meta narrative? You heard me say probably that, um, you know, my interpretation of that is original sin is the misuse of land. Mm-hmm. When land is misused, everything comes out of harmony, and that's where you get ecocide. So, so now it's like thistles and thorns, and it's going to be hard. And we have stories that sort of that, that parallel that as well. And so everything's going to be tough now. And it's a, it's a way of explaining like how the world is, right? It's always what we try and do. From Randy's perspective, the Genesis story is meant to be a parable, not a history lesson. And the moral is that if we mistreat the land, then everything falls out of harmony. The garden itself, a lot of our native people will say, well, that happened to the white people over there, but we, we're in our garden, right? America, we never left the Garden of Eden, so to speak. This is what talking to Randy is like. He's an engaging conversationalist, a natural comedian, but every now and then he'll slip in a casual reminder that the way we typically view Christianity is completely intertwined with a Western perspective. It can be a bit jarring if you're not prepared for it. And he's good about it, considering that his people have been systematically removed, brutalized, and killed for centuries by my people. I think people are mostly good. But misusing the land, I think Creator takes that seriously, so seriously that it is embedded in the earth that when you treat the earth badly, that the earth will strike back. And, and it also leads, you know, ecocide leads to ethnocide. Mm-hmm. We start blaming each other and everything, you know, and, and so we got to find people to, on a hierarchical scale to blame. And, and so, um, yeah, it's all interrelated. Um, there's a lot of wisdom in the Genesis stories, uh, if we would read them right. Okay, switching gears here. We'll be back to Randy in a minute, but like I said, this episode will be a little different. We'll be interspersing Randy's interview with bits of reflection from another conversation Michaela and I had a few months ago about the IPCC SR 1.5 report. IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, an international body comprised of the world's climate science experts. They are the best thing we have to an authority on climate change. And in October, they released a new report, one that left us feeling a bit anxious. Okay, so I'm just going to read a few things from the IPCC SR 1.5 report. What does SR 1.5 mean? Special Report 1.5, short for 1.5 degrees. So 1.5 degrees Celsius of overall warming of the atmosphere of our planet. We often hear of a 2 degree warming, and I always thought of that as a threshold of sorts. That if we limit the Earth's warming to 2 degrees Celsius in the next century, that'll be enough. That's, for instance, what the Paris Agreement was based on. But what I forget is that there's no on and off switch to global warming. It's a far more gradual process. So this is a report that was issued by the IPCC, and at the Paris Agreement, there was a group that was given the job of finding out how much different 1.5 
degrees of warming would be versus two degrees of warming. And so this is, this is a pretty substantial report. This is the product of that. The report was released on October 7th, 2018, right in the middle of our road trip. So it's something that's been on our minds as we've been processing all of our conversations. So a, a, couple, a couple things that the report says. Point B3.1 says of 105,000 species studied, 6% of insects, 8% of plants, and 4% of vertebrates are projected to lose over half of their climatically determined geographic range for global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius. And this is compared to 18% of insects, 16% of plants, and 8% of vertebrates for a global warming of 2 degrees Celsius. So that's about double. About double will lose their available range. And then B3.2 says approximately 4% of the global terrestrial land area is projected to undergo a transformation of ecosystems from one type to another compared to 13% at 2 degrees Celsius. So that's like more than a tenth of Earth's land will be a different ecosystem in the next 50 years if, if two degrees of warming happens compared to 4% at 1.5. And that's, that's pretty significant. That's a lot of humans who, a lot of humans and a lot of species that will need to figure out how to live in a place that doesn't look like the place they grew up in. This led me to think about how little I know about the fragility of our ecosystems. Do we know how far-reaching the changes to those ecosystems will actually be? Well, okay, take for instance the farmers in Bluffton. There was a single species that moved further north this year, the thrip, that took out the entire strawberry crop. Either we're not in touch with those changes enough, or we just don't understand the implications of them. I mean, we learn all the way back in third grade that if one thing is disrupted in a food chain, the entire system changes. And so that's just one small example of the ripple effect that one, one thing can have. Okay, back to Randy now. He's got a few things to say about what he calls the community of creation. I wrote a book called Shalom and the Community of Creation and Indigenous Vision, um, which was primarily written to non-native people so they could get a bigger vision of how we're connected to the world and, and how we're connected to the Creator. The phrase I like to use is community of creation, that we are all connected. When, when I go out into the soil and I pick up a handful of good dirt, and I had to amend this naturally over the years, right? In a cup, I've got 400 billion microorganisms. I've got four miles of you know, mycelia. You know, I've got all these different things that are, it's alive. And I tell people, no, I'm, we're not the farmers here. These are the farmers, you know, the, the, all the microorganisms. Our job is just to keep them healthy. So we're like doctors, right? So we keep the soil healthy, and they help our plants grow. We're connected even to the microorganisms, says Randy. And if we don't practice that awareness, then we could end up destroying the very things that sustain us. So I, I refer to this big thing as the community of creation. I'm related to the animals, I'm related to the water, and, and to me it's alive. And so things that I, I wouldn't do to another human being, you know, I have to consider my actions, what I would do to 
the soil or to the water or anything else. And so we're all community together. If we really are connected to the rest of creation, the way Randy puts it, the implications for that are troubling in light of climate change. Is our fate as humans tied up with the fate of the planet? And there's a lot in here about about animal life and plants and ecosystems and all of this, but there's also quite a bit about humans and how um, humans will be impacted. And this is the one that was the most shocking to me. Point B 5.1. Poverty and disadvantages are expected to increase in some populations as global warming increases, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared with 2 degrees Celsius, could reduce the number of people both exposed to climate-related risks and susceptible to poverty by up to several hundred million by 2050. Several hundred million. Several hundred million people. So what this is saying is that hundreds of millions of people could be kept from being exposed to those risks if we were able to limit the rising temperature to 1.5 degrees instead of 2. And that doesn't even include the millions of people who will be affected regardless, or who are already being affected by displacement due to natural disaster, heat, or sea level rise, by lack of access to clean water and adequate food, and by disruption of food production, among other things. I think what's interesting to me is that we're seeing these patterns happen already. For instance, right now there are thousands of people trying to migrate to the U.S. from Central America. We've seen this happening. We're not doing a good job of, of addressing it, even now. And it's only going to get worse. I'd been talking to my sister, Sylvia. And she was saying, it seems like now is the time that we should be working to figure out just like basic things, like how do we communicate with those who view the world differently than we do? Or how do we implement systems that... Um, perpetuate justice instead of injustice? How do we take the immigrant in? How do we adapt? And like now is the time to be practicing that. This is what pulls us all into this conversation because these are social questions, not environmental concerns. There are practical social dilemmas that involve the doctor and the teacher, peace builder and social worker and farmer. And we need to figure out how to answer them now before we have a multitude of displaced peoples trying to figure out where to go. It's reports like this one that make the urgency of our situation hard to ignore. It's a sobering report in a lot of ways. And it has underscored a lot of our conversations. And I think one of the things that is most sobering to me is that the Paris Agreement, which was a landmark 
agreement has never happened before in our world that agreement gets us barely to the two degrees celsius warming mark and the way the ipcc sr 1.5 report makes it sound it, it makes it it makes two degrees sound like hell compared to 1.5 it's it uh, it's the ipcc trying to say hey look we are getting to two degrees right now and that's like fine if that's what you want but this is what's going to happen at two degrees and it's not great like it's still really bad this is not a time for us to settle for what we can get this is a time for us to push as far as we as as much as we possibly can because every little bit does matter and randy agrees this is no time to settle because this is what we are meant to do uh, i understand humanity's purpose is to repair disharmony that's our job um, that, that's our sole purpose on earth and and for me all the ceremonies were given all the stories were given all the spirituality all the things of whatever it is it's it's about restoring harmony so that the earth will produce in abundance and people can live and generations will live and not just generations of me but generations of animals and plants and all the rest right so everything is valued to its purpose said randy and humanity's purpose is not only to be passive caretakers of creation, but active repairers of disharmony. That makes us distinct from our fellow creatures. The key then is to understand it maybe in a circular way, that you know we all sort of have a role to play, if you will. There are, I guess, apex predators. So for example, I lived in Kodiak, Alaska. You know, the Kodiak bear is the apex predator there. If you're out, even with a gun, you still don't stand a great chance, you know, so. But the great thing about human beings is we have this sort of opportunity to, to not be the apex predator that other animals maybe don't have. Like, I don't know many tigers that don't eat meat or, or wolves, that was a, use a North American example. They're made for that. They, they've got the canines, they've got the, the hunting prowess, they've got, they know how to run in packs and, and do this, and, and yeah, they don't, they don't get more than they need, right? So there's some things that we can learn from watching them. There are teachers as well. But I think that choice to not eat meat, that choice to not kill as much, is something that the animals don't have that we do have. And I, I struggled for a long time with becoming a vegetarian. And, and again, since I said I'm a 90% vegetarian, I'm still struggling a little bit. You know? <laughs> um, but I think for me and for for what I understand my life to be about, it gives me the opportunity to humble myself and to not kill, to not be responsible for more killing, to, to lessen the load, on, the burden on the planet.
We'll return now to stories of origin, of creation. These are stories that shape culture, define our values, and direct our orientation to the world. Since I was a young child, the Genesis story of the Bible has, at least subconsciously, shaped my understanding of my place among creation, of the character of God, and of good and evil. But the story you're about to hear is a different one, an origin story of Native American tradition that Randy lives by. So this story is uh, one of our Cherokee stories. And uh, the, the problem was that the earth was so small at that time. It was really it's up on top of this mountain that we call Blue Mountain in Cherokee country. And animals were a lot larger back then. And so uh, the animals started complaining, and what do we do? They said, we need more land. There's no, there's no more land for us. And so they went to Creator and said, you know, Creator, can you make some more land? And so Creator said, well, if I just make land for them, they won't appreciate it. They won't treat it right. You know? So what Creator says was, if you dive to the bottom uh, off of the land, if you dive to the bottom of the ocean and you get a ball of mud and you bring it back to me, I'll spread it all out, right? So the animals go back and they're really excited. And, and so they, they, they meet and they say, well, who's the best divers around us, you know? And so right away, uh, Duck pops up and Duck says, you know, hey, you know, I'm a really, really, really good in the water. So, and Grandmother Turtle was in the back and she said, you know, I can do that. I can go get the mud. And they were like, oh, Grandmother Turtle, no, no, you're too slow. And so, so, so Duck went out and Duck dives down once, twice, three times. Each time she pops back up. She finally comes back and she's a little embarrassed and she says, you know, I'm a, a lot better at floating than I am at diving. So, um, so maybe somebody else ought to do this. And so, so they, they talk among themselves again and Grandmother Turtle right away steps forward this time and says, I'll go get the mud. I'm happy to do it. And so they all looked at each other. It's like they don't want to embarrass her, you know, but Grandmother Turtle, you're just too slow. So let's find somebody else. And so they thought, well, who's the best diver out here? Well, it was Otter. And Otter's really good at diving. And so they said, Otter, would you go get the mud? And Otter said, oh, yeah, sure. So Otter takes off, and they wait one day, two days, three days. And finally, they look down the beach, and there's Otter laying there eating a fish, laying on his back. And they're like, you know, hey, Otter, Otter, come here. So Otter comes down and says, what happened? He looks at him and says, what do you mean? Well, we sent you to get mud. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I got chasing this fish and I forgot. And What were we talking about anyway? <laughs> so they're all, well, Otter's no use. Who's going to get the mud for us now? So Grandmother Turtle, again, stepped forward. She said, I'll go get it. I'll get the mud. But they said, no. Grandmother Turtle, just they just kind of pushed her in the background. And the beaver stepped forward. And beaver said, you know what? I'm a good diver. Uh, and I never play like Otter does. I just like to work <laughs> all the time. And, uh, you know, and I don't eat fish. So I'm perfect candidate for this. And so they said, okay. So, so beaver goes out. And, and she's gone for a couple days. Then it's three days. Then it's five days. And after six days, they're like, man, where's Beaver? And finally, she comes up, and she can just barely make it to shore. And she goes, you know, nobody can do this. It's, it's too far down. We just kind of give up. There's not going to be any more room for us. We're going to run out of room. 
So about that time as Beaver was making her case, Grandmother Turtle just walks through the middle of them and she slides down and she's gone. And they're like, oh, wow, I guess Grandma Turtle's gonna do it. She took it on herself. Uh, so she was gone, a couple days go by, three days, four days. After the fourth day, they said, you know, Squirrel, can you hop up in the tree and take a look and see, because we're really worried about her. So Squirrel goes up. It was on the seventh day that Grandmother Turtle, they, they saw her from way down. Squirrel says, I think I see her. And she's floating up to the top and her legs are stretched out. Tail is stretched out. Her head stretched out. And they're just bobbing in the water. And sure enough, she was dead. So the duck and the beaver and the otter, they go out and they bring her back. And, and all the animals are standing around and they're grieving Grandmother Turtle and uh, what she tried to do for everybody. And, and they're also grieving themselves because they're out of room and they can't go ask Creator to make more land. And so, so somebody looks down and says, wait a minute, hey, what's that in Grandma, Grandma Turtle's hand? So they look down and they peel her claws back and sure enough, there was a ball of mud. And so... The animals run to the creator with the mud and they said, you know, this is what Grandmother Turtle did and she brought back this mud, she gave her life. And so creator said, okay. And so creator started spreading that mud out all across the land and in honor of Grandma Turtle, made it in sort of the shape of a turtle and now we call it Turtle Island and uh, to the sacrifice that she made. Randy said that when he tells this story to Native American children and asks them what the lesson is, they always have the same answer. Listen to what the elders said. And for Randy, that has a double meaning, because in his perspective, the indigenous peoples of North America are the elders for us European settlers. They're the ones who've known this land for millennia. Some of my Native friends will say, you know, oh, I wish the white man would never come here, you know, and... Uh, um, and then the, the, the opposite side of that is like European, you know, the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny and all the rest of it. So, well, God brought us here, you know. And I think there's, there's sort of some truth in that God brought us here. But God brought the Europeans here, I think, because they had despoiled everything in their own countries and brought, him, brought them here to learn. It's been over 500 years and European Americans haven't listened very well. But I'm hoping that we're entering into a time now where really the the job is to listen to the grandmother turtle, mm -hmm. to listen to the older brother or older sister, and to to say, maybe they know some stuff about how to live in this land that we don't. I'm deeply drawn to this Cherokee origin story that Randy told us, and I couldn't help but continue to ponder it as the months went by. I think the story captures something very basic about the essence of human nature, even though the characters are all animals. 
I think of the ways that we most commonly respond to climate change, especially as we continue to grapple with the foreboding numbers presented in the IPCC report. Some of us, like Duck, might speak up right away, but after doing a bit more research, come to feel that responding to climate change just isn't really our thing. Others of us are more like Otter. We may be eager at first, but inevitably get sidetracked by any number of the materialist distractions that surround us. And finally, some of us, like Beaver, set off with a grim determination to solve the problem by ourselves, only to return disillusioned by the near impossibility of the challenge before us. And that brings us to where we are today, standing in a circle with our fellow creatures, each with our own unique set of faults, running out of land with no clear solution, and just now beginning to grieve over the loss of those who came before us. It's a place of despair, of deep loss. That's where I found myself on the afternoon of our IPCC conversation, overwhelmed, desperate, paralyzed by fear. But that's not the end of the story. With her dying breaths, Grandmother Turtle offers a gift to the entire community of creation. And if Grandmother Turtle really does represent our elders, our Native American brothers and sisters, who have spent centuries living in harmony with the land, then maybe it's not too late to find that little ball of mud, that seed of wisdom that our indigenous cousins may yet hold in their hands. I wonder if we have it in us to find the humility needed to learn the harmony way, as Randy puts it, to re-indigenize ourselves, to begin to fulfill our purpose of repairing disharmony, of which there is so much in this world. Earlier, I said that this episode represents a shift towards answering the question, what do we do about it? But I think our interview with Randy, and in fact, all of our interviews to this point, have taught us an important lesson. Moving forward by asking, what are the solutions, is actually the wrong question. As we try to grasp the breadth and depth of climate change impact, we should be asking, who else are we overlooking? And what can they teach us? Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet, and transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. Special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. And a big thank you to our unsung heroes for the week. Daniel Bellarose and Doug Graber-Newfeld are overseers at CSCS. Thanks, Daniel, for being willing to squeeze three extra people into your small rental car for some long hours across the Midwest. And thank you, Doug, for encouraging us to buy decent food and stay in hotels on occasion for the sake of our sanity. You can hear more from Randy Woodley at his podcast called Piecing It All Together, that's spelled P-E-A-C-I-N-G, where he is hosting space for deep dialogue and radical integration. 
Check them out at www.piecingitalltogether.com. And you can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Look under our ACT page for a map that shows properties owned by Black and Indigenous farmers seeking reparations, including Randy. We also have photo essays that go along with each episode and a ton of other resources. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. See you next week.